Morning, everyone. Good to be with you all. Hey, uh, we have made it to the end of the book of Revelation. It's been quite a journey, hasn't it, getting through it? This is your first time here. We've been working our way through the whole book of Revelation over the last term. Now, I suspect uh, that for some of us, this comes as a welcome relief to be at the end of it. Uh, you've just found all the imagery and symbolism that is filled uh, in this book. Just too much. It's been a bit too confusing. I had one person come to me this week and say, Matt, I just want to read the book of Colossians. Maybe that's where you're at. Go and read Colossians. It's a good book. Uh, for others, you just can't get enough of the book of Revelation, or as you like to call it, the book of Revelations. Anyone get that? No? Just me? It's Revelation. Revelation, people, not Revelations. Don't worry. It doesn't matter. Uh, well, I hope this series has helped you understand uh, the structure of the book a bit better. I hope uh, you see how it's symbolic and what those symbols are pointing to and how to read this thing well. Uh, but then there's the third group, uh, and I have to admit this is the group that I'm part of. I suspect that many of us are in this group as well. Uh, and that's the group that at the start of this series, uh, you're a bit... Um, nervous, a bit wary about picking up the book of Revelation and, and reading it. Uh, but as the series has gone on, hopefully you've become a little bit less scared of it. You've started to understand what God is saying through it a bit more, and you're actually walking away excited to, to dig into it further. Well, wherever you land, uh, like I said, today we come to the end of the book of Revelation and these two last chapters, 21 uh, and chapter 22. Uh, and my guess is, no matter where you land on the, the first things I said, one, one, two, or three, I suspect that you like these chapters. And as you have listened to chapter 21, just read out by Em, and you would have known the, a lot of the stuff in these passages, that you love these last two chapters in the book of Revelation. You get verses like this, verse 4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. But these two last chapters are so much more than just some nice verses that uh, make our hearts feel good. Uh, what, what the Apostle John is doing here, he's receiving one last vision from God. And it's a vision about the end. Uh, it's what everything else in the book of Revelation has been leading up to. Uh, it's the great crescendo of the book of Revelation. Actually, it's the great crescendo of the whole Bible. Uh, history itself has been heading in this direction towards this moment ever since the beginning. And what is described in these verses is the great future that is awaiting all of those whose trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do today is start by asking you all a question. Here's the question. What is your vision of the future? What is the vision you have of the future? Because what your vision of the future is will dramatically shape how you live right now. What your vision of the future is is going to shape how you live in the here and the now. And these chapters are seeking to give us a vision of the future, one that points beyond the here and the now, beyond this life, beyond the pain and the suffering of this broken world, to a vision of heaven. These chapters are meant to focus our hearts and our minds on that future that future of heaven. But there's an objection that some people have to this vision of heaven or thinking too much about heaven. They'll say something like, if you're too heavenly minded, you'll be of no earthly good. Have you ever heard that before? Um, so is that the danger? 
is the danger that if we think too much about heaven, if we have too much of a vision of that, that will be of no earthly good in the here and the now. Well, Pastor John Piper, this was his response to that objection. When asked that question, he said, Yes, I know. It is possible to be so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly use. My problem is, I've never met one of those people. I suspect that for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of their otherworldliness, there are a hundred who are useless because of this worldliness. Do you see what he's saying? The danger is not that we would be no earthly good because we think too much about heaven. The danger for us is that we are no earthly good because we don't think enough about heaven. We think too much about this world rather than on the world to come. And so what is your vision for the future that you are living for? Because knowing this future, God's future that is coming, is going to be the thing that will help us, will empower us to live now for God as we wait for Jesus to return and to bring this future that he has promised. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these last two chapters in the book of Revelation. And my prayer is that God will give us a renewed vision of that future so that that would be the vision that we live for both now and into eternity. Now, these last two chapters, like the rest of the book of Revelation, are filled with symbolism and imagery. Uh, and so we need to look at what are those symbols pointing to, and we're going to do that. Uh, what is the structure for today? Well, last week, Tim uh, had six points, which is the devil's number. Uh, I think we can do better than that. We're at the, the end, the great crescendo, the great climax to the book of Revelation. So today, I have seven points. That is, that is God's number, after all. And seven images today uh, that God gives us of this future uh, for all those whose trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's jump in. Let's have a look at these seven images. The first image we're given uh, is of the new heaven and the new earth. Now, we, we live in a world that's broken, don't we? Uh, our world is broken. Our systems are broken. My fridge broke this week. Our, our world is broken. The central verse in this passage is what God says from the throne in verse 5 of chapter 21. He says, he who seated on the throne's throne said, I am making everything new. Now, what does it mean here that God is making everything new? Well, it's not that he's going to start again, as if he's going to make all new things. Rather, what he's saying here is that he's going to make everything new again, as in he's going to renew all things, uh, restore them to the way they were meant to be, the way that he originally designed them to be before sin and the curse entered into the world. Now, it's a future event, but the way God speaks about it here is as if it's already happened. And so, continuing on verse 5, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so we can trust that God will do what he says he will do because he is the Alpha and he is the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who made all things in the beginning is the one who will remake, renew all things at the end. Now, the word that's used there for the word end uh, is the word telos. Now, telos means the end or a goal. Uh, but it doesn't mean like the end as if your, your turn is over. Uh, telos means to reach the goal for which you've been moving forward towards. Uh, it's like when a couple get to their wedding day. 
That's not the end, but that's just the beginning of their new life together. And on this final day, when God makes everything new, that's not the end. That's just the beginning of eternity. And that's exactly what the Apostle John sees in verse 1 at the beginning of this vision. Have a look at verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The Bible begins with God making the heavens and the earth. But then the creation was put under the curse at the fall when Adam and Eve sinned against God in Genesis 3. God's good world was broken by sin and death. And we all experience that. That's the world that we live in. Uh, Romans 8.21 speaks of the creation longing to be set free from its bondage decay, where the creation will be made free again, freed from everything that corrupts it. And this is what God had promised. And so 600 years before the coming of Jesus, God promised uh, the prophet Isaiah this. In chapter 65 of Isaiah, it says, God says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And now here at the end, at the telos, at the, the great climax of history, John sees a vision of the new heavens and the new earth replacing the one that has passed away. And it's this uh, new creation that won't be like the old one. Look at how verse 1 finishes. And there was no longer any sea. Now, the, the point here is not that in the new creation there won't be any ocean. Tim, that's probably a good thing. You're probably excited about that. Uh, whether or not there's ocean in the new creation, that's not the point. The point here is symbolic. The sea, uh, sea in the Bible always is a reference to evil and chaos. Uh, in the book of Revelation, it's out of the sea that comes the beast. Uh, and so when it says there will no longer be any sea... What it's saying is that in this new creation there won't be any chaos or sin or evil that was stained in the first creation. No, and no possibility of it ever entering in to the new creation. Now just before we move on, can you imagine a world like this? where everything is renewed and made new, where things don't break and wear out, where the creation is made new, where the things you see right now, even the most beautiful parts of it, are only a shadow of what it will actually be like in the new creation, where we will be made new, where there will be no more sin and evil and chaos anymore. Well, that's the first image we're given here of a new heaven and a new earth. But then what John sees next is the great climax of this new creation. What we're given is an image of a new city. Let's have a look at verse 2. It says, I saw a holy city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, I have pretty mixed feelings about cities. I always said I'd never move to Sydney, but here I am. Uh, cities are exciting, they're filled with all sorts of energy and life, uh, but they can also be pretty overwhelming places, heaps of people and traffic and noise and pollution. But like everything else we've seen in Revelation, these, this image here of a city is, is symbolic. It's meant to point us back to the Old Testament. Notice this city was called the New Jerusalem. 
Now, in the Old Testament, the city of Jerusalem was the the climax of what God was doing as he rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land and established Jerusalem as the capital city. It was the place where the temple was built, where God promised that he would dwell by his presence. And so it's a symbol of rest for God's people. It's a symbol uh, of rest from their enemies. There's gates and walls, and it can be defended. It's a place of security and rest for God's people. Now, whether there'll be a literal city in the new creation, again, it's not the point. It's symbolic language that's being used here. And did you notice that this city comes down out of heaven from God? At the beginning of the Bible, uh, you have people trying to make a name for themselves and they build a city to reach up to the heavens. Now here at the end, what we have is this great city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. There's no longer going to be a divide between heaven and earth, but God will unite the two together as one. But this image is more than just a city. Uh, Because what we are given next is this image of the city, but it's also a bride. Did you notice that? It's like the, the language gets confused here. And so the third image we get is the image of a bride. Have a look again at verse 2. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You see it again in a few verses later in verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And so you get this image of a bride. Now, what the angel says is, come and I'll show you the bride. But when John looks, what he sees, again, is the city. And so have a look at verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, it had, great high wall, uh, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, at first reading, it might seem as as if he's describing here the structure of this city, the walls and the gates and the foundations. But again, these things are symbolic. The 12 gates uh, uh, of the city have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. The The 12 foundations have the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The bride and the city symbolism here is combined Because the bride isn't a single person. It's not an individual, but it's a great multitude of people from the Old Testament, the New Testament, the people of God coming together to live in the security of this new city, this new creation. But then you have another image that's laid upon top of the city and the bride images. And again, you see that uh, in verse 2. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. Do you see the image that's here? It's of a wedding. The image that we're given here is of God walking down the aisle 
with the bride. Uh, that's Christians. To present her to her husband at the wedding ceremony. You know, as a, as a dad gets to walk uh, his daughter down the aisle, that's like what God is doing here, down the aisle of heaven, to give this bride, this daughter, to her husband. This is the great wedding of the, the church and Christ, the true marriage of which all other marriages have been always pointing forward to. And so the Apostle Paul, quoting from Genesis 2 in the beginning, in Ephesians 5 says this. He says, For this reason a man will leave his father, father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. At the beginning, God presented a bride to his son, Adam, Eve. At the end, God will present a bride, that is the church, to his son, Jesus, the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed in his role as a husband, Jesus does not. He's the one who, in the language of Ephesians 5, presented her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Jesus is the one who has washed us clean. He's washed the bride clean by the blood of the Lamb and now presents her beautifully dressed to himself. The image we get here is of relationship, of intimacy, of two coming together as one. And it's this relationship, this marriage, that leads us to our next image, and that's the image of God dwelling with us. Let's have a look at verse 3. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The key word here is the word dwell. Uh, it's the word tabernacle is behind it. It means to come and pitch your tent amongst us. In the Bible, uh, it begins with God in perfect relationship with his people, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. The language the Bible uses there of God walking with them in the cool of the evening. He is their God. They are his people. But it's after they sin and they turn away from God that he has to remove them from his presence. They can no longer dwell with him. But it's from that moment on that God sets a plan in place to regather his people to himself. And so as God rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt and brings them uh, towards the promised land, he came and he dwelt, that's the same word, tabernacled with his people in the tent. That's the, the temporary temple as they wandered through the desert for 40 years. And then later on in the temple in Jerusalem. And so although God was dwelling with his people, it was in a very limited sense at this point. There was no real access to God. Uh, he was in their midst, but it was only the high priest. And only then, only once a year, and only after he made sacrifices both for himself and for the people, that he could then enter into God's presence. Then fast forward to the New Testament as Jesus comes. As Jesus enters into the world, the Apostle John says in uh, John 1, verse 14, he says... The word became flesh, that's Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. That's the same word, tabernacle. And what he's doing, what Jesus was doing in his life and his death, was making it possible again 
for God to dwell with his people because he was removing their sin from them. He became the once for all time sacrifice that restores our relationship with God so that we can he can dwell with us again. And then here at the end of this new creation this great wedding finally again God can come and dwell can tabernacle with his people live with them forever. This is the vision of the future that we get here. That in the most full and final sense, God will come and dwell with us. That heaven will come to earth, that we will be his people, that God will be with us and be our God. This is the heart of God, to dwell with us. And he's the one who's done everything that needs to happen to do that, to make it possible for him to dwell with us again. And that's when he says, when that happens, as he comes and dwells with us, that we get that most beautiful promise from verse 4. Where it says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. See who it is that wipes every tear from our eyes? It's God. The new heavens and the new earth will be united as one. Everything that is cursed and the broken and evilness of this world will be undone. Everything will be made new and God will dwell with his people in the city of God and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and even death itself will pass away. That's the vision of the future that God gives us here. Now, again, just take a moment to imagine what that future would be like will be like no one's being sick no sickness no disease no one struggling with mental health no pain no sadness no mourning no death it's hard to imagine what that would be like isn't it most days i have pain from a back issue that i have we live in a world where so many of us have pain and sickness and sadness in our lives where our bodies and our minds don't work the way that they should. Uh, I'm getting to an age in life where it's no longer weddings and babies, but um, divorces and funerals. That sort of seems to be how life goes. But God is bringing a future where the old order of things will pass away and bringing in this new future. But then there's a sixth image that's given to us, and that's the, an image of a new temple. So have a look at from verse 15. Here, John shows us the measurements of the city. Have a look at verse 15. It says, The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, <coughs> its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement. It was 144 cubits thick. Now, my first temptation as I uh, read this was to try and convert these measurements, uh, which if you do, is 2,200 kilometres long, wide and high, uh, which is apparently at the time of John's writing this, about the size of the world as they knew it. Uh, for us, it's about as far as from here to Cairns, just to put that in perspective. Try and imagine a city that big. That's a big city. 
Uh, but like a, we've been saying each week in this series, uh, all the things in Revelation are symbolic, and numbers in particular have a symbol behind them. And we've already met the numbers 12 and 144 throughout the book. Now, what do they represent? Well, both represent the people of God. In this city, it is the great multitude of the people of God from the Old and the New Testaments coming together. But there is another thing here about the dimensions of this city. Did you notice the shape? It's a cube. That would be a pretty strange-looking city, wouldn't it? I I Googled it this week. Um, Here's an image that... Oh, there it is. Here's an image that came up as I Googled it of what this city could look like. Is Is this what we're going to all be living in? City looking like that. Oh, I guess it's sort of cool. I don't, I don't know if you'd want to live at the, on the top floor. The elevator would take a long time to get 2,200 kilometres up. Again, I don't think we're meant to understand the future of heaven as we're going to be living in this cubed-shaped city. Instead, we're meant to think back to the Old Testament because there's a, another cube-shaped room in the Old Testament. It's much smaller in size. Well, what was it? It was the most holy place, the holy of holies, the room in the middle of the temple that God said he would dwell by his presence. Moreover, the description you get in the coming verses, 19 and 21, uh, of the, the precious jewels uh, point to the breastplates of the priests who would serve in the temple. They had the same jewels on them as they would serve. And so John concludes in verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Do you see the point of this image? In the Old Testament, access to God was only through the most holy place by one person once a year in the most limited sense. But now in this new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, the whole world is the most holy place. The whole world is the temple of God and we will have unrestricted access to the presence of God. And then there's one final image that we're given. And that's an image of a new garden of Eden. And so have a look in chapter 22, 1 to 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. The Bible begins with God placing his people in the Garden of Eden. And now in this new creation, the vision that John sees here is of a new garden in the city of God, where the river runs through it. And here it's the river of the water of life that flows from the throne of God. It's the living water that Jesus promised to the woman of the world in John chapter 4, that if you drink of it, you will be satisfied for eternity. And there's the tree of life like it was in the garden. But here, it's now an orchard of trees on both sides of this river, and it never stops producing fruit. And then there's leaves. But in Genesis 3, the leaves were for the hiding of people's shame and guilt, whereas here, it's now for the healing of the nations. And the curse that came upon the world through Adam and Eve is finally removed. 
and we will serve God like we were meant to back in the beginning when God created us in his image and likeness. He gave us the role to rule and to reign over God's creation. And now here at the end, that is exactly what we will do. We will serve God and we'll rule and reign over this world. And then finally, at the end of all of these images that are piled on top of each other, you get this. In verse 4, we will see his face. At the center of this new creation is a relationship with the God who made us. That's the heart of these chapters. This is the great crescendo of the book of Revelation that we will see God. We'll see his face. This is a relationship that we are all made for. And in the new creation, we'll see him face to face. That's the blessing of Numbers 6. We often hear this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. This is the great blessing that we will have in the new creation, to see God face to face. This is why we call this series Blessed. And so there you have it. Seven images that God gives us here to show us a vision of the future and what the new creation will be like for all those whose trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we're brought back down to earth in verse 6 of chapter 22. It says, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspired the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. That's our future, but we're not there yet, are we? As in that they haven't happened yet. We're living in the time the rest of Revelation has been talking about. Remember John, the guy who wrote this? Where is he as he writes this, as he receives this vision? He's in prison. He's been placed there uh, because he's been sharing the gospel with people. And the, the people he wrote the, the book of Revelation to, well, they're people that are facing all sorts of suffering and persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. But it's this vision of the future is what both John and his first readers needed to be able to endure and to keep persevering in their faith. And it's the vision that we also need, the vision of the future. And so is this the vision of the future that you have? Is this the vision that you live for here? Thomas Schreiner, at the end of his commentary on the book of Revelation, says this. If believers truly understand the reward that God has for them and has it as the great vision and hope of their future, then they will not forsake the gospel now. But if they do not have this great reward and the great vision of the future, then they are in danger of forgetting about it and turning away from Jesus and listening to the dragon instead. And so the call from the book of Revelation is for faith. It's for endurance, it's for patience, and it's for hope, a certain hope as we await this future that God has promised. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He can bring and will bring about this great future for us. And so hear these words from Jesus at the end of Revelation 2. Three times in the last verses in the closing chapter of the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am coming soon. 
Jesus is coming to bring about these new heavens and this new earth. That is our future. And so as we finish up, uh, we've seen seven images of this new creation, what it will be like. But as you read through these two chapters, what is scattered in, in amongst it three times is what won't be there. You see this in chapter 21, verse 27. It says, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. For heaven to be new, for it to be a new creation, God has to purge it of everything that is evil, that everything that is impure. And so the question is, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you come under him? Is, have you washed yourself clean in the blood of the Lamb? Because if you haven't, and if you're thirsty for a future like that, well, the invitation's open to all because it finishes with this, verse 17. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes uh, take the free gift of the water of life. The offer is open to all to come to him, and he will give you the gift of the water of life to drink from it eternally. So come to Jesus, the Lamb of God who has washed you clean by his blood and received the free gift of water, of life that is found in this new creation. Why don't we have that as our vision that we live for in this life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that at the end of this great book of Revelation and the end of history, you have shown us a vision of what you will do, that you will make a new heavens and a new earth, that you will bring a... About this about because you have conquered. We thank you that we can trust you because you are the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Lord, we pray that that would be the great vision of the future that, that we would live for now, that you would make us so heavenly minded now that we would be of much earthly good, that you, you would cause us to patiently endure and to keep the faith and to share that message with others. Lord, we thank you that in the new creation there will be no more death or pain or sickness or crying anymore, but that you will make all things new. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.